Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. This is Adjua Robinson. I attach meaning to things that don't need it. This is a quote by Irene, one of the clients profiled in the book Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things, co-authored by today's guest, Dr. Gail Steckety. Keeping those unneeded things to the extent that it causes excessive clutter is one of the symptoms of compulsive hoarding. Irene is not alone in her difficulty discarding unneeded things. As many as 15 million Americans may express hoarding tendencies. Hoarding can lead to negative physical and social outcomes, including illness and death, social isolation, and broken relationships. Although most of us have only recently been exposed to this serious issue of hoarding through popular television shows like Buried Alive and Hoarding, Dr. Gail Steckety has worked with hoarders for the last 15 years seeking to understand the psychopathology of compulsive hoarding symptoms. Dr. Steckety is a professor and dean of the School of Social Work at Boston University. In addition to compulsive hoarding, Dr. Steckety's research and practice includes the cognitive aspects of obsessive compulsive disorder, cognitive and behavioral treatments for OCD, and compulsive and OC spectrum conditions such as body dysmorphic disorder. Dr. Steckety spoke with Katherine Kendall, Assistant Dean for Admissions and Recruitment at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work by telephone. Dr. Steckety, I just want to thank you first for spending some time with us today and was hoping that maybe you would get us started by talking a little bit about your most recent book. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and happy to speak about that as well. Dr. Randy Frost and I have written stuff Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And we're very pleased to have that book come out this year as a book that we intended for the broad public to better understand the problems of hoarding as we present them in a series of cases with different features that illustrate different facets of this pretty complicated problem. That sounds very exciting. When again do you think it will be published or come out? Oh, it has come out as of April. So we've received a lot of you know, very helpful publicity about it and very good feedback about it. We hope it's enjoyable to readers. That sounds very exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested first in researching and hoarding behaviors? My interest comes through my own research on obsessive compulsive disorder, which I have done for some years now, a couple of decades. 
and also through Randy Frost, my close research colleague, who began working with a group of students in one of his seminars who wanted to do a small side project on hoarding. And when they put a notice in the local newspaper, this was out at Smith College, they found a large number, more than 100 people, responded to a little ad about pack rats. And that began a series of small research studies and some clinical investigations of what it was like for somebody who had a serious hoarding problem. So gradually, as Randy got more and more into it, he pulled me over into more serious research on this problem. So that's pretty much how we got interested. So for some of the listeners who may not be well-versed on perhaps diagnostic criteria or what hoarding behavior really looks like, could you go into a little bit more detail about how one would identify that? Gladly. The main feature of hoarding is difficulty discarding. People cannot get rid of things that they have, even when most other people would consider them useless or of very limited value. Sometimes it's even trash items that they can't get rid of. So difficulty discarding inevitably leads to clutter, and that is a hallmark feature of hoarding, is excessive clutter in the home that interferes with a person's ability to use the space in appropriate ways. So when you can't sit on the furniture or you can't use the table, the dining room or the kitchen table, or you can't cook on the stove, these become interfering problems. There's one more feature of it, and that is the excessive acquiring that people do. They pick up things that are for free or they shop at various places that they're fond of or they stop by tag sales. They even simply collect but never get rid of the mail that comes in the door every day. So the acquiring and the difficulty discarding combined means that the clutter climbs at great proportions and creates a serious problem. So I imagine that you frequently are asked what is the tipping point or what is the difference between someone's collection or collecting and hoarding behavior? Yes, and it's a good question because sometimes collecting can slide over into hoarding, but for the most part, collecting represents a person's individual interest, usually in a selected group of objects. One, for example, could decide to collect bottle caps, and if you did that, you would be someone who wanted to find all the different bottle caps that represented, let us say, years in which they were produced, each a little different from the other before it, represented a wide range of the number of bottle caps that were put out at that time, and so on and so forth. So you seek the unique features of each item and you display your collection so that other people could see it. So you might have a wonderful piece of furniture with fine little drawers in it in which you put all your bottle caps so you could pull it out and people could look at it. That's a collection. And many of us have many collections of different things. But, for example, the woman in the book that I just mentioned, Stuff, one woman comes up to Randy and shows him this wonderful, huge trash bag full of bottle caps, which she's very, very proud of. Now, it's one of many trash bags of things in her home that are cluttering the space. And she's proud of the bottle caps in the same way that a collector is, but there is absolutely no way that you could display these items, that people could appreciate them. And in addition, she hasn't spent any time distinguishing among the caps to find the unique features of them. So it's just a big pile of bottle caps that she happens to have collected by the side of the road. 
In some of your recent articles, you talk about emotional intelligence. You talk about a variety of things in regards to how someone perceives these. That's kind of what you're talking about now is moving away from what most of us who might have collections are able to organize and understand and, and place value and structure within that collection. I think you've said a couple of key words, organized and value. So collections are typically valued by other people as well. And you see that, for example, when collections of various sorts of things like stamps or it might even be jewelry or any number of items are auctioned off and they will draw a reasonable price. And the better the collection is, that is the more broad-based it is and the more representative of the object being collected, then the more valuable it is. So that's different than someone with a hoarding problem who isn't able to make those distinctions, who doesn't really distinguish something of high value to other people that would separate those items out. And they're not able to organize them effectively so that they can be displayed. In fact, they usually have so many things that you couldn't possibly display much of anything in their homes. I have had a personal opportunity to be in a household that would qualify as the collecting area of uh, someone who has hoarding behavior. And I, I noticed differences between general clutter, the quantity building up general clutter, and then almost an organized clutter. Is there such a thing as organizing the excessive acquiring of things? Well, I have seen a few situations. I'll say they're not common, but a few, where a number of the things are organized, or at least they were initially organized. There is out and about one of the films on hoarding, and I'm going to space on the name. I apologize for it. In it is represented a young man who is collecting a wide variety of things, including musical venues of various types, CDs and things about music and so forth, as well as other things, little statues and whatnot. He has a huge amount of this stuff in his apartment, and he's actually managed to organize it in such a way that it's strung over his head in somewhat complicated fashion. The problem is that he lives in California on the fault line, <laughs> and so what is over his head could easily kill him. And this is one of the problem situations. And then as he walks around and shows his apartment, what you realize is that you can't really do anything without moving everything in front of the place that you want to get to. So you can't easily get into the kitchen and open the refrigerator without moving several things aside. He recognizes that it's gotten out of hand. You know, we hear also about people who collect or carry this behavior over to animals in their household. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, and we don't really know the extent to which animal hoarding and hoarding of objects is related at this point. We're simply not sure. And we initially found that a number of the homes with animal hoarding uh, in them, uh, and these are identified usually through legal channels because they come to the attention of the authorities, the local SPCA, for example. Then as we were trying to do our research on those, we would go into the home of those who gave us permission. And often we would find a fair amount of excessive numbers of items, objects lying around. But mostly what we find is that there's a fair amount of squalid conditions in these homes because the animals have been allowed the run of the home. So animal collecting is the acquiring of a substantial number of animals that overwhelms the caregiving capacity of the owner. 
So this would distinguish someone, for example, from a breeder where the animals are kept in appropriate environments, they have access outside to play, where they are taken for a walk, where they're fed properly, and where they get good veterinary care. Whereas animals in a hoarding home often have begun as small numbers and then have gradually taken over the space. Sometimes they interbreed and it's out of the control of the person who has gotten the original animals. Sometimes a person is affiliated with a local animal shelter and is taking animals home in order to prevent them from being euthanized. But gradually the animal population builds over time to the point where the person can no longer provide proper care. And they then begin to cause damage to the home, um, often to the point where the home has to be condemned afterward. What would you say the prevalence is in the general population, uh, either of continuing on the topic of animal hoarding or back to hoarding of other excessive, as you say, stuff? Unfortunately, we do not know the extent to which animal hoarding occurs. We only have case reports that come to legal authorities, and no one that I'm aware of has yet tried to you know, put a number on this that is useful. There are obviously cases that are out there that are not yet known to the authorities, so it's very difficult to detect this. We do, however, know that hoarding of objects is remarkably prevalent. It is somewhere between 2 and 5% of the population. So to give you a flavor of this, if it were 2%, then we're talking about one in every uh, 50 persons. If it's 5%, we're talking about one in every 20 people which is really quite prevalent. What I will say, we suspect that the true number is probably in the 4% range. This comes from about four or five studies that have been done so far. Are these studies primarily in the United States? A couple of them are. There's one from the UK. There's another in Germany. So we're getting information largely from Western cultures at this point. We don't know very much at all about the prevalence of hoarding in other cultures where there is not as much consumerism or commercialism available. In those prevalent studies, any additional insights into what might make someone more vulnerable or any particular groups or people who may be more likely to go down that path? Well, what we know from studying people who have hoarding problems is that they tend to be a little bit lower on the socioeconomic spectrum, although we certainly know the full range of people all the way from those who are rather poor to those who are quite rich. So we know that it's not a respecter of that aspect. We know people who are well-educated and people who are not well-educated. We do find a fairly high percentage of people who have significant health problems. And so hoarding does seem to be associated with health difficulties and lower socioeconomic status. But that's about all we know. There are some other features, for, for example, that I can tell you a little bit about. One is that most of the people who come to us wanting treatment for hoarding are women. And so that's probably up in the 75 80% range. But when you do the epidemiological studies, going door to door or calling randomly to the population, the bulk of people with a hoarding problem are men. So, you know, that's an interesting differential there. It means that there are a number of men out there who are not seeking help 
uh, compared to the women with the problem. Of course, the number of help seekers altogether is probably relatively low compared to the number who actually have a serious problem. And is it your experience that individuals who take the steps to seek out assistance are doing it as the primary goal, or they're perhaps being pressured into needing to do something about the condition of their home because of a housing issue or condemning of the housing situation? I would say that the largest portion of people who have hoarding come to our attention for non-voluntary reasons. And that's the kind of hoarding and housing situation that you're describing, for example, where a landlord is having a problem with a tenant, housing inspector has come in and discovered that they're in violation of the lease, and some work needs to be done, and so they're under great pressure. Sometimes we we actually get very frequent calls from family members who are very concerned about an elderly parent, for example, or a brother or sister or a spouse who has a significant hoarding problem that is affecting those living in the home as well as themselves. And so both of those groups are under pressure from the outside. I would certainly say that the majority of people, even those who find us themselves who have a hoarding problem and seek our help or the help of the several colleagues I have around the country, are still somewhat ambivalent about whether they really want to fix this problem because they are so very attached to their stuff and they don't want to lose it. So it makes sense, that ambivalence that they have. How do you see that influence prognosis in regards to changing of behaviors? Well, I do think, let me distinguish, people who actually make the call to us are certainly already more motivated than a large portion of people who are out there whom we could simply call non-voluntary clients. The problem has been identified by someone else. They're pretty much resistant. And of course, the more the authorities push them, the more resistant they become. So that's something that we try to help train our human service professional colleagues about is uh, not to get on the wrong side of that balancing act of awareness of a problem and motivation to seek help for it. But in any case, most of the people who do seek our help are likely to benefit if they're willing to commit themselves to a significant portion of time working on the problem. And for us, that's probably going to mean at least close to a year, sometimes more. Can you speak a little bit to the the tools that one might have available for assessment and kind of directing treatment? Sure. We use several assessment instruments to help us just measure the severity of the problem. And one of the simplest uh, that we enjoy using and people find helpful is the clutter image rating. It's a series of nine photographs in sequential order of the amount of clutter for each of three rooms in the home. So we have nine photographs of a kitchen, of a living room, and of a bedroom. And it's pretty easy to see just how much clutter there is in your home. People can just point to the picture and say, well, that's about what my room looks like. So that's a very helpful measure of the amount of clutter. We also have some self-report measures. The saving inventory, for example, uh, helps us get at the amount of acquiring behaviors and the degree of difficulty discarding the distress that people feel, the impairment that they have, and so forth. Those are typical instruments that we use. And can you speak a little bit about what treatment is out there right now? Let me first say before I get into that, that the treatment that we have is based on a model for understanding 
what is going on for somebody with a hoarding problem. We assume that we're starting with a group of people who have a certain vulnerability to this problem. And some of that might come from prior history. For example, they may well have lived in a hoarding home because hoarding does run in families. There is a genetic linkage here. It's not well uh, researched yet at this stage, but our geneticist colleagues are confident. So there's that biological element of it. We also uh, have some evidence that the disorganization that we see in people's homes is in fact part of the brain situation. So some aspects of executive functioning don't operate as well as they do in other people. So they are fundamentally disorganized and need special skills to fix that problem. Many, probably 20-25% have attention deficit difficulties, which is again probably mainly biologically based and is reflected in difficulty staying on task for long enough to accomplish the goals that would be reflected in their efforts to try to clean up. It's just a little too, they're too scattered to stay with it or it's too overwhelming for them and they quit. So those are major cognitive features that they have that we would want to fix. We also need to understand a little bit about the background history because if there is a family history or if they have been taught things, one of the most common personality features that we see is perfectionism. And it shows up in a wide variety of ways. A simple example is somebody who didn't want to throw out a, an old battered suitcase because she knew there was a key around somewhere and she just couldn't bear to throw out the suitcase without the key that went with it, even though she was throwing it out. And so that kind of wanting things to be together and assembled in some holistic way bespeaks a form of perfectionism. And we do see it in other matters of wanting to assemble things in curious ways that reflect a certain kind of order in their own minds. So there are certain features like that and things they've been taught, like waste not, want not, by a father, for example. I remember a client who had a father who had said that over and over to her, and so she could not bear to throw things out in case they might conceivably be useful, a very common reason for saving things. Those kinds of background factors are affected by other features like people's creativity, what they see in objects, how they think about their objects, their beliefs about things like not wanting to be wasteful because that's morally unacceptable. They want to hang on to things because there might be important information in there that could come back to haunt them if they didn't have it. So there's fear-based hoarding there. The waste not want not is probably more guilt-based than anything. So you can start to see the emotions come into play as they hold certain beliefs about hoarding. And some people just love to look at objects. They find things beautiful, and so they get a kind of a high from looking at and manipulating things that they have. So those lead to certain positive emotions and negative emotions, both of which drive hoarding behavior. So if you can't get rid of your clutter, for example, because you feel fearful that you're going to throw out something important, or you feel guilty because you're being wasteful, or because you would be throwing something out that you truly love, and so you'd feel a sort of a grief reaction. Those are all strong motivators for keeping objects. So that's the model on which the hoarding behavior 
is based, and it drives our treatment strategies. We begin, I've mentioned the motivation problem, that people are not necessarily referring themselves. And so that ambivalence requires an initial uh, work using motivational interviewing techniques. We've drawn those from Miller and Rolnick's classic works on that topic. And we begin the treatment with that, and we use motivational interviewing throughout treatment whenever we encounter ambivalent statements or behaviors. So somebody you know, might be asked to have done something between sessions, and if they don't do it, then we immediately launch into some motivational questioning about what happened there and why that might be. We then do skills training. We have to train attentional skills. We need to train people's organizing skills, because often they don't really know how to put things together in logical ways so that they could find them in the future. Professional organizers are extremely good at this and often do treat hoarding. So organizing skills is a, a specialization of theirs. We also teach problem-solving skills and decision-making skills. How do you decide? How do you weigh the value of an object and the likelihood that you will want it or need it in the future? We then do a tremendous amount of direct exposure to sorting the things. We will start in an important area of the home that they've identified. Ask them, for example, to sort the things on their kitchen table and figure out where those objects should go if the home were clear enough. So we'll probably have to do some interim steps to set up some area where we can do the sorting, box some things until they're ready to go to their final destination, hopefully uh, help the person decide that they can part with many of the objects sitting in front of them because that is a goal. And if they're going to get rid of things, they'll need to sort them into simple trash, which again, they need to make decisions about what is and is not trash, uh, into recycle, what would be appropriate and what are the rules for that. And sometimes they want to give away or donate things. And we have to be a little careful because they tend to want to put everything into that pile, but many things are inappropriate for that. So again, decision-making training is part of that sorting process. And of course, the actual getting rid of the items, it's one thing to put it in a box that says trash. It's quite another to take it out to the curb and actually watch the trash truck pick it up. So we try to help people through that process because there is a lot of emotional side effect to that. The grief reaction and the fear that goes with it is quite strong, and people need assistance getting through that. We also do exposures to situations where people acquire things. So if they're, for example, accustomed to going out on trash day and looking around to see what people have put out and collect a bunch of stuff, we would arrange for ourselves or somebody who's assisting them, a coach sort of person, to go out with them and not collect. Uh, it's a little bit like helping a person who's got a drinking problem and is now gaining control over it to walk by the bar and not go in to the bar. We'll also go into shops with them that are favorite stores or things of that nature to, again, help them resist a powerful urge to collect. So that's pretty much the treatment program and the skill that they build as they begin to sort and make decisions increases in speed, but initially is very, very slow. It's frustrating for family members, I'll say that. But gradually they gain more confidence in what they can do, and they can do it more quickly. For a home that's very full, of course, it just simply takes longer.
And it really seems that that's a treatment model that requires practitioners and helpers to really think out of the box, that this is not something that can be treated in somebody's office. That's correct. We can do a fair amount of treatment in the office as long as we do some home visits and especially if we're able to identify someone who can spend time in the home with them. Sometimes that person is helping them do it, but oftentimes they're just sitting around being sort of a useful person. They can be knitting in a corner, and sometimes it helps keep a distracted person on task just because that's why they're there, to be a facilitator in the process. We can do some work in the office if they, for example, we usually recommend early in treatment that they sweep a corner of the kitchen table off into a box and bring it in to the office. And then we sort through those and let them talk their way through how they think about these things so they can hear themselves. We can understand what the beliefs are that are tying them to these objects, what the emotional reactions are, and what the history is, because the history almost always comes out in the course of these conversations. And then as we do that, we can guide them to begin to consider alternative ways of looking at the situation or the object. We can help them compare objects and get better at distinguishing higher value and lower value, higher need and lower need, for example. So we can do a fair amount of work in the office, but not if there's no one in the home. It's unlikely that they can make much progress if there's nobody at all at home. I want to ask you about some of the television shows that seem to be coming out now, seemingly for our entertainment, that highlight some of these struggles and hoarding behavior. Have you had a chance to watch those and, or have any comments about them? I've seen a few, and I certainly know of them. They have certainly garnered public interest. I think it's a wide-viewing audience Buried Alive, I think, is one of them, the hoarding show on A&E and so forth. And there have been a number of single shows on hoarding as well, and Oprah has had some of these and whatnot. The shows that are on, the featured shows on hoarding that go from week to week about this, I think initially posed a bit more of a problem than they have been lately, although there are a couple of caveats I would give. They're good in so far as they're educating the public that this is a serious problem. Indeed, hoarding is a serious problem, and it can be a deadly one as people die in fires and avalanches that occur in their homes, especially when people are older and less mobile. But at the same time, they're pretty much displaying the far end of the spectrum, so you don't see the more moderate level problem where we would love to have people get help early in the process rather than wait until it's quite severe, as we often see on the TV shows. They've become a little bit less sensationalizing in the past, I would say, few months. And some of the shows are providing uh, direct treatment that follows the show. They seem a little bit less interested these days in doing a simple clean-out, which was the focus of early shows, and can be quite catastrophic for people. Uh, the only way I can get this one across is by saying, well, you know, just imagine that burglars came into your home and cleaned it out without your permission. How would you feel? And even if you'd given permission, how would you feel? So that's how they feel. And it is no solution to a hoarding problem because it does nothing to train skills or to moderate the emotional state or change the beliefs that they have about these objects.
So in that regard, to the extent that the public gets the misimpression that this can be quickly treated, that's a shame because it really cannot be quickly treated. It can be effectively treated, I think, with proper attention to the problems that are inherent in hoarding. And you've mentioned a couple times now the concern for the sheer quantity of these acquisitions posing then a, an imminent physical danger. A gentleman who lives in California and an earthquake could bury him under his own things. What information or what knowledge or what advice would you give a practitioner or, let's say, a case manager or someone who might be going into the home to do an on-site assessment, obviously with a client's permission, any thoughts about first responders or safety of, of others in the home? Yes, and I'm going to mention a couple of resources here because I think they are useful. One of them is the OC Foundation website. There is an international OCD foundation, and the website is www.ocfoundation.org that has a virtual hoarding center on it. And in there is a variety, wide variety of material about hoarding, some of which addresses some of the first responder and the safety issues. A number of it addresses family issues because sometimes family members walk in on these scenes as well. And in addition to that, Oxford will be putting out next year a book uh, by a close colleague of mine, Christiana Bradiotis, on hoarding and human services. And so that also will have specific chapters about first responders, about people in housing, about people in public health, and so forth, responding to hoarding problems. So let me just say a little bit about that. One of the major issues that can help keep a person who is not a voluntary client calmer is when the first responder focuses solely on the things that are most dangerous. And so if that becomes the main source of what they talk to the hoarder about, and they also offer ways of helping the person solve that safety problem, then they will have gotten a foot in the door. They will likely lead this person to further treatment down the road following the immediate repair of the health or safety problem. So you're looking for things that are blocking exits, for example, because emergency personnel can't get into a home and some people die in this fashion. They simply couldn't get in in time to save the person who was having a heart attack. The firemen can't get in to put out a fire under those conditions. They look for things that are about to cause, could cause damage by fire because they're close to a heat source. Next to the stove is a pile of papers and the stove is a gaslit stove. That's obviously a dangerous situation. So if they work first on those, then, and of course housing inspectors have these at their fingertips, they're very well aware of these health and safety issues, then that will be a great first step on the problem. The other cautionary note I have for first responders is not to say out loud the, oh my God, how can you live like this <laughs> statement. It's the first thing that comes out of almost everybody's mouth. And it's maybe the, the shows, the TV shows, will help them not do that because they've seen it before, uh, if only on TV. Um, but it's very important not to offend the person in this way if you're ever going to gain their trust and help them get out of this mess. 
you know, I would say that walking into an environment where you felt instantly overwhelmed, that there's probably quite a bit of a, an impulse to do something like that. So that's good to have that mindful awareness and, of and your environment, hard. right? Right. It's hard to resist. Yes, it is. I'll just make a quick comment about family members because family members have almost exactly the same tendency. And on top of it, they feel guilty because they feel like they should have known and they should have done something or should be able to help. And they often feel powerless. So there's a wonderful resource for them in a book called Digging Out by Michael Tompkins, T-O-M-P, Tompkins, and Tamara Hartle that is designed specifically for family members and guides them through the do's and don'ts of how to be helpful to someone who's not really willing to consider mental health treatment but might very well be willing to consider at least some alternatives before you can get them into more serious help. And again, it revolves strictly around the health and safety issues. So you've given us uh, quite a few resources, actually, uh, today. Uh, the uh, Tompkins book, Digging Out, and the uh, OCD Foundation, OCFoundation.org. And, of course, your most recent book, um, Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding, and the Meaning of Things. Um, I- I'm it really interested in, um, you know, as a uh, going through the DSM-IV and, and where, uh, where this lives, Diagnostic. It's a very interesting question, and it's a very hot topic right now. So the DSM has a subcommittee on OC spectrum conditions, and that subcommittee has allowed my colleagues and I, several of us, to present to them a set of criteria for hoarding along the lines that I mentioned at the outset of our conversation. They have now put those in draft format, and they are testing those criteria in a variety of research and clinical settings around the country and I believe around the world to make sure that they are holding together properly, that they're easy to use by mental health clinicians and so forth. So I believe that probably with the next DSM-5, we are likely to see hoarding come out as possibly a separate diagnosis in its own right living in the OC spectrum conditions. It's conceivable that they'll decide that they're not quite ready to do that yet, although I think that the evidence points pretty strongly in that direction. We do know that it does not live under OCD. It it is not an obsessive compulsive problem. There are many differences between hoarding and OCD that make it a, a relatively poor fit for that category. I have always thought that perhaps that that was going to be the case. So it's it's very interesting to hear what's what's happening in the research right now. A couple of the differences there, uh, there are some biological differences. For example, the genetic linkages in hoarding are different from the genetic linkages in OCD. The brain scan patterns are different in these two populations. And there's relatively little overlap. Most people with an OCD problem have another form of obsession. So if you have contamination fears, you're also likely to have some checking rituals or perhaps some repeating or other types of obsessive things. People with hoarding don't typically show that. About 17% of them will have some form of OCD symptom, but that's not a particularly high percentage for what you'd expect if it was OCD per se. Is there any other parting words that you could leave us with today? Well, 
I will direct mental health professionals to our Oxford books that are treatment guides for hoarding. We have a guide for the clinician and a workbook for clients that should be helpful in helping people understand the model for how to develop a way of thinking about a particular person with a hoarding problem, how to understand their problem and how to treat it. And another favorite book of ours, which is Buried in Treasures, and that's the self-help version of the book, which again outlines the same model and self-help treatment strategies. We suspect that by itself it won't help people with serious hoarding problems, but it may very well be useful to people with more moderate symptoms. I certainly encourage people who have hoarding to stick to it, to work hard at it, because it does take a lot of uh, time and effort to do, and for family members and friends to do the same, that slowly but surely they can hopefully help someone with a hoarding problem find appropriate care that will really relieve them of the symptoms and certainly keep them out of danger. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Steckety. And I have to say, this has been very exciting for me to hear some of the new research in the area and your work. You're most welcome. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Dr. Gail Steckety, Professor and Dean of the School of Social Work at Boston University, discuss compulsive hoarding behaviors. Thanks for listening. And join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.